Welcome to In-Depth. I'm your host, Jill Webb. With the new year comes new laws for New Yorkers. For one, if you rent out your place on Airbnb, there are some changes. New city regulations that could push 10,000 listings from the platform. The city is also regulating how artificial intelligence is used in the hiring process. The hope is to reduce employment bias. And across the state, a massive change is coming to the justice system. New York will no longer prosecute or arrest children under age 12 for pretty much all crimes except homicide. Previously, anyone between the ages of 7 to 18 could be charged as a juvenile delinquent. This comes a few years after New York's Raise the Age became law. The Raise the Age legislation mandated that anyone under the age of 18 could not be prosecuted as an adult. Criminal justice advocates say this new legislation was desperately needed. The Legal Aid Society's Lisa Freeman joined me to unpack what this means. She's director of special litigation and law reform for the juvenile rights practice. Why was this something that criminal justice reform advocates rallied for? So New York is actually the last state in the country to have such a low statutory age for juvenile delinquency prosecution. So the reason that this move is so important and so overdue, frankly, is because we know, and by we, I mean social scientists and advocates know that children that young can simply not understand what it means to be prosecuted. And in fact, prosecuting them causes more harm than good. Proponents of this legislation say that children can't meaningfully participate in their own defense and the whole court system process due to their cognitive ability at that age. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. You know, being prosecuted is a complicated process. So just to step back for a moment, it involves not only the actual prosecution in court, but it involves being arrested. So children can be placed in handcuffs, transported in police vehicles, and then taken to court. And for a young child, we're talking about kids in elementary school, they simply don't understand what is happening to them. And they are not able to meaningfully participate in a defense of any prosecution. If in fact there is a need for some action to be taken, which is not always the case in New York's practice, right? Up until now, there have been very, very minor crimes that have resulted in prosecution of young children. That simply should not be the case. But if something needs to be done with regard to a particular child or that more often that child's family, it's in the nature of providing them with needed services. It's not about prosecuting a child and putting them through a system that doesn't allow for them to meaningfully participate. In the past, how often were kids in this age group getting arrested? The data that I have is from 2019 and includes 12-year-olds. So we're not talking about 12-year-olds under the new law. 12-year-olds will continue to be prosecuted as juvenile delinquents. So it's a subset of this number, but there were approximately 800 arrests across New York State in 2019. 
Of those arrests, only about 120 of them actually resulted in prosecution. So that means that even though the child was subjected to an arrest and you know being taken presumably to a precinct and processed, ultimately before the case went to court, it was diverted from court and a decision was made not to prosecute. So we're not talking about very many children that were actually prosecuted, but the harm was significant. And what kind of circumstances were these kids getting arrested for? So more than 60% of the arrests were for property-involved crimes or allegations of crimes. So really, it could be something as, as minor as shoplifting for an elementary school kid to be arrested by the police, taken in a patrol car, and subjected to a really traumatic experience for stealing a piece of candy is not just a waste of our resources as a society, but also affirmatively harmful to the child. How does this contribute to the school-to-prison pipeline? So our hope and belief is that this will help to interrupt the school-to-prison pipeline. Because I don't know about you, but I've seen footage of arrests taking place in schools that is incredibly upsetting. And where we know that the outcome that's called for, if any, does not involve the juvenile justice system. It really doesn't require that level of intervention. You know, a fight between two children can be dealt with much better outside of the juvenile justice system than it can be inside the juvenile justice system. So we really believe that by ending this aspect of the school to prison pipeline, there will be greater justice for children. A majority of kids in this age range who were getting arrested were Black or Latinx. How will this legislation help marginalized kids? So that's exactly right. In New York City, over 90% of the kids ages 7 to 11 in 2019 who were arrested were Black or Hispanic, even though they only make up about 57% of the population. So the social science is clear that people tend to adultify children of color. They tend to treat them as if they are older than they are and to hold them to inappropriate standards as a result. So that's exactly one of the benefits of this change is that it ensures that children are treated as children regardless of their race. What should New Yorkers expect when this becomes law? I think they can expect a more efficient use of our public resources to focus on where those resources are needed so that law enforcement isn't spending time on minor crimes and not just law enforcement, you know, our justice system as well crimes where intervention by the system is not beneficial. And instead, we can use those resources where they're really needed. Speaking of those resources, what services are going to replace prosecution and arrest? So as I mentioned, in some instances, there really will not be services that are needed. For instance, a fight between two children might be best dealt with by a serious conversation with them and discussions with their parents by, you know, school practitioners. So there are many instances in which we think that no services will be needed, but where services are needed, it will be the whole host of services that are really, really already available through our social services agencies. So what this bill will do is ensure pathways for those families to access services if they are needed without wasting the resources of the juvenile legal system. 
During this transition, do we have enough resources to handle the switch over? We should. We should. I mean, there are funded services across the state and each social services department is required to create a plan. So they've had a year for implementation. You know, the bill was passed in December 2021 and it will not go into effect until January. So they've had plenty of time to develop those plans. Do you have any predictions on how this will impact the overall justice system going forward? As I mentioned, our hope is that this will help improve the school to prison pipeline to ensure that minor incidents between elementary school children do not result in consequences and harm to children that are completely unnecessary. And as I also mentioned, we think this will improve racial justice because the vast majority of kids who are affected by the criminalization of elementary school children are kids of color. And we think this will help address that. What do critics of this legislation usually say when arguing against it? I think critics are typically politicians who engage in fear-mongering because they find it beneficial. But I think that anyone who is familiar with the actual data and the actual experience of children in the juvenile legal system know that this is the right thing. And as I mentioned, New York State is the last state in the country with such a low statutory minimum age for juvenile delinquency. So it's, it's a well-accepted fact across the country that this should not be going on. Are there any drawbacks associated with putting this into place, either in the short term or the long term? I don't think so. I think this is really a win-win for New Yorkers. Lastly, looking to the future, what other issues regarding children in the criminal justice system do you want to see addressed in the coming year? I'm so glad you asked that question. So a bill that we have been working very hard on at the Legal Aid Society would ensure that any time a child under the age of 18 is arrested and interrogated by the police, that they be given a lawyer before they can waive their right to remain silent, before they can waive their Miranda rights. So social science shows us that kids do not understand their right to remain silent and do not adequately weigh the long-term consequences of that, of waiving that right. If any anyone has parented a teenager, they know that they would not want a child in a precinct without a lawyer. They know that their child could not be expected to understand what was going on. And so this would really level, level the playing field so that even kids who don't come from families that can afford to hire a private lawyer would be given a lawyer in the precinct before they were interrogated. More than 90% of kids waive their right to remain silent when they are subject to police interrogation. And we also know that the rate of false confession among kids is much higher than it is among adults because kids want to say whatever they think it might take to get them out of the precinct. And a lot of the time they think if they confess, whether it's true or not, they'll be allowed to go home. So this bill, the youth interrogation bill, which passed the assembly last year and which we were hopeful will move forward this year, would really provide justice for kids. Advocates say this change will help with the youth mental health. They argue that the criminalization of children only escalates problems. 
One report found that 30% of kids who go through the juvenile justice system develop PTSD. Dr. Carly Bates is a child and adolescent psychologist at NYU Langone. Her research looks at the intersection of mental health and the juvenile justice system. She joins the in-depth conversation. So what happens when a child gets arrested? What kind of impact does that have on their mental health? So being arrested can have a significant impact on a youth's mental health, and it often depends on a youth's particular background. But one of my areas of specialty is in trauma and trauma-related disorders. And so what we see in the juvenile legal system is very, very high rates of traumatic stress and trauma exposure. And being arrested can further exacerbate that, particularly if youth are arrested and then processed through the juvenile legal system. So things like prosecution and then ultimately out-of-home placement There are a whole host of different possible ways that that can be both traumatizing and re-traumatizing for youth, depending on their histories. And it also reduces opportunities for kids to actually get the services they need because the juvenile legal system is not a mental health system, even though it sometimes tries to operate that way. So you think it's kind of the same response during an arrest versus when they actually have to go through prosecution? Well, in terms of an arrest, I mean, certainly every arrest is different, right? But when youth are arrested, we have heard numerous, numerous examples of how this increases the likelihood for police brutality, right? We also see a significant, you know, a disproportionate number of Black and Latinx youth being subject to arrest. So there's racial trauma and racial discrimination that are part of that as well. And then for youth to be arrested, just if you think about what that experience might be like for a child, you think about what that experience might be like for any of us to be arrested. It's a scary, you know, time, situation. Kids don't always know their rights. They often don't. They don't often know what they're being arrested for. They're being read Miranda. And there have been many studies that talk about how kids don't necessarily understand Miranda rights and what those mean. So there are a lot of different opportunities throughout that arrest process for you know, youth to be taken advantage of, and they're also vulnerable. They're kids. And it depends also on the individual kids as well, different outcomes. A lot of kids who go through the justice system have experienced previous trauma. So going through you know, arrests or prosecution, is that kind of re-traumatizing them? It absolutely can be, and that's one of the things we really worry about from arrest to prosecution to court appearances to juvenile detention, right, when youth are placed in detention facilities like ones that I I often work in. Even just being touched for some kids can be a trigger and remind them of trauma that they've been through. Forced touch, for instance, being away or separated from family. One of the things that we often work on with kids who have histories of trauma and are experiencing traumatic stress symptoms are really providing as much information as possible, explaining what's happening providing expectations. Those are trauma-informed practices that we try to build into any interaction with kids, particularly those who have a history of trauma. And those often are not things that are happening throughout the different pieces of the process throughout the juvenile legal system, including arrest. And when you implement those trauma-informed practices, how are outcomes affected for at-risk kids? That's a good question. So in the immediate, you often see kids sort of calming down, right? So when kids are triggered, particularly when they have a history of traumatization, they're less likely to be thinking clearly. They may be really activated, right? Confused. Trauma affects memory. When you utilize trauma-informed practices, this brings down what we often refer to as a youth alarm system. So it sort of turns the volume down and allows them to feel safer and be able to think more clearly and make better decisions. When you utilize trauma-informed practices with a youth, particularly an at-risk youth who's experiencing a trauma reaction, This really helps to calm them down, 
diffuse the situation, and the outcome is often better for everyone. In the long term, you know, you are then reducing the likelihood of things like PTSD or post-traumatic stress symptoms, depression, substance use can have a huge impact on a youth trajectory. As we implement trauma-informed practices, what kinds of programs and treatment approaches do you see are working the best? So it's a good question in an area that needs a lot more research. Trauma-informed practice isn't just about treating the youth. It's really about targeting the entire environment. So that also applies to the legal system as well, right? So if we actually are using practices and interventions and training judges, attorneys, detention staff, anybody who's working with the kid or interacting with the youth, then we're not just treating the youth, but we're treating that entire system. And that's going to have a much more significant impact on improving a youth's future and trajectory and ability to thrive and heal than just treating the youth themselves. So we're in the midst of an ongoing youth mental health crisis. Do you think the criminalization of kids is tied to that? I do. You know, when youths enter the juvenile legal system, even just with an arrest, this really sets them up on a trajectory of further involvement. You know, even if what they're being arrested for is, you know, allegedly a very minor offense. And that really increases, you know, as we've been talking about, the likelihood of future traumatization, reduces opportunities for achieving these important developmental milestones that are so crucial in childhood and adolescence, right? And it also can result in kids being labeled at a very early age, which then affects how they see themselves, what they see as their ability to achieve, and how others see them. And particularly different systems, right? Like the education system, or even in employment, things like that. So criminalizing kids, and especially because the significant burden on Black and Latinx youth, right? Because they're disproportionately represented in the legal system, that criminalization can really set up a vicious cycle. This sets up a situation, a real domino effect in a vicious cycle where kids then enter the system, and then it's really hard for them to ever get out, especially at younger ages. And I think one of the things that is so important about eliminating the ability for youth under age 12 to be arrested and then go through this entire process is that that labeling hopefully isn't going to happen and kids are going to be able to get these differential response systems or teams hopefully put into place so that kids at younger ages are identified but they don't go through a process that could potentially make things much worse for them. As we go into the new year, what do you kind of want to see done in the long term around all of these issues? So one of the major things that I really want to see done and and, I'm really committed to trying to help see achieved is more community-based mental health services and quality services and better access to services. So I think I saw this in my legal practice. I see it now in my practice as a child and adolescent psychologist working with kids in, in juvenile legal settings. Kids are often coming in and they haven't had their mental health needs met in the community, which is very related to why they then end up in the juvenile legal system, which is not equipped to to manage those mental health needs. So I really want prevention and community-based treatment to be bolstered significantly, and that all families have access to quality mental health services, regardless of where they live, their income level. That's something that every kid deserves, and that would help us reduce the number of kids who end up coming into contact with these systems. Dr. Bates, thank you. Thank you. Everyone isn't pleased with this change. 
Some lawmakers have said this prevents children from learning accountability. But advocates say kids won't just be sent home with no hope for change. Social services will be set up to provide mental health care and other services. So instead of being put in the juvenile detention system, advocates say they will get the help they truly need. Thank you so much for listening. In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to producer Dempsey Palat and audio engineer Andy Eganthorpe. Fabi Redwood is the managing producer of podcasts, and I'm Jill Webb. Cheers. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 